Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton, and welcome back to TanakhStudy.com. Today we will complete Parshat Mas'e, chapter 35, verse 1, through chapter 36, verse 13. And with the completion of Parshat Mas'e, we will also end Sefer Bimidbar. Today's section can be divided into three smaller units, all of them dealing with the issue of nachalot, or possessions of land. The first section, chapter 35, verse 1, through chapter 35, verse 8, deals with the Arei HaLevi'im, the special cities separated for the Levites to live in. The second section, chapter 35, verse 9, through verse 34, deals with the Aremiklat, or cities of refuge, providing refuge for certain individuals. And the third section, chapter 36, verse 1, through the final verse of the book, verse number 13, deals with the issue of the daughters of Tzelofchad and whom they are permitted to marry. Of course, as I pointed out, the larger subject of Nahalot is one that pertains to discussions that we have been having during these final sections of Sefer Bimidbar. The background to the first section, cities designated for the Levites, is that the Levites, according to the Torah, do not receive a tribal territory of their own. As we have seen, the land has been allotted according to tribe, but the tribe of Levi is not included in the allotment. In Parshat Korach, chapter 20, sorry, chapter 18, verse 20 of Sefer Bimidbar, in the aftermath of Korach's rebellion, when the privileges assigned to the Kohanim and the Levi'im are formalized and spelled out, God says to Aharon explicitly, Ba'artsam lo tinchal, ve'chelek lo betocham. You will not possess in the land of the people of Israel. You will not have a share in their midst. I am your portion and your possession, says God, in the midst of the people of Israel. Of course, in ancient times, priests amassed power through land acquisition. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why the Torah does not allow the Levi'im to have a tribal territory. Recall, for instance, in Sefer Breshit, when Yosef is in the employ of the king of Egypt as the viceroy, he is able to amass land for the pharaoh as the famine rages with the exclusion of the land belonging to pharaoh's priests. Chapter 47, verse 22 of Genesis states, However, the land of the priests he could not purchase. It was a statute of the priests from Pharaoh that they would have their land and therefore they did not sell it. So the implication from that is, in typical societies in ancient times, priests acquired power through the acquisition of land. And one of the things that the Torah wants to do is to limit the power of the Kohanim the theory being that the more power, the more corruption, and as a result of that, the Levi'im do not have a tribal territory of their own. At the same time, 
the Torah wants to emphasize that the Leviim and the Kohanim have to be devoted to their real mission. If they were agriculturalists and farmers, that would take up the majority of their time. But being denied land acquisition as a tribe, effectively they live off of the handouts of the people of Israel, but that allows them to devote themselves to their true mission. In Devarim chapter 33, when Moshe blesses the Levites, among other things, he has the following to say, they, were, they will teach your statutes to Yaakov and your instructions to Yisrael. They will, seem, they will put incense on your altar and whole burnt offerings as well. So effectively, in Moshe's blessing to the Levites and the Kohanim, he makes it clear that their true mission is to serve as guides and instructors of the people of Israel in order to have the time to devote to that august task. They are therefore denied land acquisition, and that explains why it is that they need special cities associated with them. The Rambam, at the very end of Sefer Zira'im, picks up on this theme and essentially develops it further, saying that this is true of the Levites, and in fact any teacher of Israel should be prepared to live a life of deprivation to some degree so that they can be devoted to the much more important task of providing instruction and guidance to the people. Therefore, the cities of the Levites are effectively scattered among the other tribes. There are 42 cities which are allotted to them, as well as the six cities of refuge, bringing us up to a total of 48. Effectively, each tribe assigns four cities from its territory, on average, for the dwelling of the Leviim and the Kohanim. In Joshua chapter 21, these cities are spelled out, and the tribes, of course, that provide the cities as well. We begin by reading chapter 35, verse 1. God spoke to Moshe at the plains of Moab on the river Jordan against Jericho, saying, Command the people of Israel so that they give to the Levites from their possession cities in which to dwell, and an open space around those cities will be given to the Leviim as well. The word migrash here, which is typically understood to be an open space, Rashi explains revach makom, it is a open space outside of the city, which is intended to beautify the city. It is not permitted to build houses in that area. It's not permitted to plant a vineyard. It is not permitted to sow a field. Effectively, the root of the word migrash is garash, which is, which is to drive out, as if to say this area around the city is to be devoid of any other things, whether they are fields or vineyards or houses, and left completely wide open. In modern environmental terms, we would, of course, refer to this condition as a green lung, as it were, an area which is forbidden to develop. So now the Torah is saying, 
we must provide the Levim with cities to dwell, and each one of those Levitical cities also is to have an area around it, a Migrash, which is also for the use of the Levim. Pasuk Gimel, V'hayu he'arim lahem lashavet, u'migrashehem yihiyu livhemtam v'lirchusham u'lechol chayatam. These cities will be for them to dwell, and the area around the city will be for their animals to graze, for them to place down their possessions, and anything required for their livelihood. Verse number four. The area around the city which is to be given to the Levites in addition to the city, from the wall of the city outwards, will be a thousand cubits in measure round about, with the cubit being something on the order of 18 to 24 inches. You shall measure outside of the city, on the eastern side, 2,000 cubits, on the southern side, 2,000 cubits, on the western side, 2,000 cubits, on the northern side, 2,000 cubits, and the city will be in the middle. These will be for you, the empty area around the cities. So here the Torah speaks about 2,000 cubits. In the earlier verse, it spoke about 1,000 cubits. Chazal solved the contradiction by suggesting that the first 1,000 cubits beyond the city wall was effectively to be left wide open, and another 1,000 cubits beyond that could be used for vineyards or for fields or for other uses. So effectively you have the city in the middle, you have this green lung around it, which cannot be developed, and then beyond that green lung, further de development can take place, typically in the guise of agriculture. Verse number six. The cities that you will give to the Levites include the six cities of refuge, which are to be given for the killer to flee, and above them, more than them, you shall provide 42 other cities. Verse number Zayin. Kol he'arim asher titnu l'alviyim, arba'im u'shmoneir eten ve'et migreshehen. All of the cities, therefore, which you shall provide to the Levites, shall be 48 cities in total, them and their open spaces around them. Pasuk chet. Ve'he'arim asher titnu me'achuzat b'nei Yisrael, me'et harav tarbu, u'me'et the cities which you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from those that receive much, you shall give more, from those that receive a little, you shall give less, each one according to the possession that he possesses shall give from his cities for the Levim. So with that, our first section ends, the Levitical cities, 42 in total, and an additional six, which are the cities of refuge. And this immediately leaves, leads us to the next section, which deals with the Levitical cities. We therefore continue with the second section, beginning with Pasuk Ted, Vayidaber Adunai el Moshe, Lemo, Daber el Bnei Yisrael, Vamarta Lehem, 
כי אתם עוברים את הירדן ארצה כנען. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, you are going to pass over the Jordan into the land of כנען. And of course, of course, this is a refrain which characterizes these final narratives in Sefer Bimidbar, the imminent entry into the land, and how that, of course, dictates the subject matter of these final sections. והקריתם לכם ערים, ערי מקלט תהיינה לכם, ונס שמה רוצח. You shall designate for yourselves cities, cities of refuge, they shall be for you, such that the killer may flee, he who kills another individual, bishgaga. In tribal societies, which are very, very close-knit and based upon the family unit, it was usually the case that justice was meted out by the relatives of the injured party. Often, however, this justice was swift, lethal, and without any of the checks and balances that a functioning judici judiciary can provide. Effectively, it's a form of vigilante justice. The purpose of the Aremi Klut the cities of the refuge, is basically to remove the judgment and the punishment from the hands of the relatives and to turn it over to an impartial body, a court, so that the accused or the convicted can actually be treated in a way which matches the crime and an impartial fashion. We might regard the institution of Aremi Klutz, cities of refuge, to on the one hand be addressing the reality of Israelite society at the time, which as I said is tribal and clannish, and at the same time to try to foster and nurture a more developed and a more refined sense of justice. Obviously it is a process over time to turn a tribal identity into a more national one, to turn a judiciary based upon the family into one based upon something more impartial. And as a result of that, various rules are introduced in our section, namely, who may be punished, by whom they may be punished, and what punishment can actually be expected and exacted. In Parshat Mishpatim, chapter 21, verse 13 of Sefer Shmot, we have a very concise introduction to the subject of the cities of refuge. In that connection, the Torah says, one who strikes his fellow and kills him shall be put to death. But he who did not ambush his fellow and, brought, and God brought it about such that he killed him unintentionally, I will designate for you a place to which you can flee. So this one verse in Parshat Mishpatim is effectively expanded into our section now into Parshat Bimi, in Parshat Bamidbar where we, where we talk about the details associated with the cities of refuge. And the very, force, the very first thing to recognize is that refuge and cities of refuge really only apply as verse number 11 indicated, to one who is make nefesh bishkaga, one who kills unintentionally. The other term, which stands in contrast to shigaga, is mezid, or unintentional. These days, 
depending on the jurisdiction and on the country, we might differentiate between first-degree murder or second-degree murder. In both of these situations, there tends to be intentionality in first-degree murder. There's also premeditation and planning. Second-degree murder might be spur-of-the-moment and crimes of passion, but effectively, these are both forms of mezid. In our situation, we're not talking about one who kills another person intentionally with forethought and planning, but actually one who kills unintentionally without having planned it at all. Uh, we may call this, without getting into the legal aspects of it, something like criminal negligence causing death. So effectively, the Torah says, in a situation where someone caused the death of another human being through criminal negligence, the tendency of the family of the victim would be to avenge that death by killing the killer, in spite of the fact that he didn't do it intentionally, and it wasn't an act of murder. And therefore, the Torah now designates cities of refuge to which he may flee from the wrath of the family. Verse number 12. These cities will serve as refuge from the avenger, from the relative, Rashi says, of the family, the Goel, literally the redeemer, the one who redeems the honor or the life of the family. And therefore, the one who killed shall not die before he stands before the congregation for judgment. Pasuk Yud Gimel. As for the cities which you shall provide, there will be six cities of refuge for you. You shall provide three cities on the other side of the Jordan, which is to say the eastern side, and three cities in the land of Knaan. They shall be cities of refuge. Of course, this seems somewhat imbalanced. On the eastern side of the Arden, there are only two and a half tribes. On the western side of the Arden, there are ten. Why should we require three cities of refuge on the eastern side? The rabbis explain that the eastern lands where the two and a half tribes lived were effectively frontier lands. They were less governed by the rule of law. And therefore, people tended to take liberties with their behavior. Death through criminal negligence was more common, and therefore it was necessary for there to be three cities on east of the Arden, just as there were three cities west of the Arden. The Ramban, however, offers a very, very interesting question. He says, according to what we explained earlier, the Levitical cities also double as cities of refuge, if we have 36 cities of refuge on the west and six cities, sorry, 36 Levitical cities on the left and six on the eastern side of the Ardain, or 42 in total, that effectively indicates that the proportions are just right. Therefore, the Ramban concludes, in contrast to the prevailing tradition in the Talmud, that the cities of the Levites were in fact not cities of refuge, and therefore we have returned to our initial question, so why do we have three on the east and three on the west, when there was in fact more people on the west than there was on the east? Nevertheless, 
the Ramban does suggest that the Levitical cities are not cities of refuge. This is not, however, the prevailing view or the view which is expressed in the Talmud. The Ramban's own solution is that the lands east of the Yarden were what much more vast than the land of Canaan, and therefore we required more cities of refuge in order to accommodate that larger territory, even though it is a smaller population. Verse number 15. For the people of Israel, for the convert, for he who dwells in their midst, these shall be cities of refuge, that he who strikes down another person unintentionally may flee to them. Verse 16. However, if he struck him down with an implement of iron and killed him, he is a murderer, and the murderer shall surely die. If it is a stone that he holds in his hand by which he struck him down and killed him intentionally, then he is a murderer. The murderer will surely die. Or if it is an implement of wood that he holds in his hand by which he has struck him down and killed him intentionally, he is a murderer. The murderer will surely die. The avenger of the blood will kill the murderer. When he encounters him, he will kill him. If in hatred he pushed him, or he threw upon him something in ambush such that he died, or in hatred he struck him with his fist and he killed him, he is a killer. Motyumat, and he who killed is a murderer, the avenger of the blood will kill the murderer when he encounters him. So the Torah basically distinguishes very sharply between the horeg b'mezid and the horeg b'shogeg, the one who kills intentionally, who is a murderer, and the one who kills unintentionally. The privilege of the city of refuge is only extended to the one who killed unintentionally. By the way, a more detailed explanation of all of these permutations is provided by the Mishnah and the Gemara in Tractate Makot, Chapter 2, the tractate which explores the issue of the cities of refuge and he who kills unintentionally. Verse 22. below but if suddenly and without hatred he pushed him or threw upon him any vessel without intention or ambush, or any stone that kills, but he did not see him and he threw it upon him and he died, he was not an enemy to him and did not seek his harm. In that situation, it is effectively an unintentional act of killing. The Gemara learns from this, by the way, casting a stone upon someone, literally 
throwing it down upon him, an important distinction. Ha'horeg derech yirida gole, derech aliyah eno gole, one who kills unintentionally, in lowering something, will flee to the city of refuge and remain there. The one who kills by raising something will not. So for instance, in the following scenario, let's say somebody is standing on a ladder, they are raising up a heavy pail from the top of the ladder, and as they raise up the pail, the rope snaps, the pail drops, and kills someone. That's not considered criminal negligence causing death. That's considered completely accidental. On the other hand, if one is lowering the pail, and in the course of lowering the pail, the rope snaps, the pail drops, and kills someone, that would be unintentional or horeg bishogeg. The difference being that if I am in the act of lowering an object rather than raising it, I have to be more vigilant that in fact there's nobody underneath, I have to be extra careful, and if I unintentionally cause someone's demise through the act of lowering, then that's called horeg bishogeg. Pasuk kafdalid v'shaftu ha'eda ben hamakeh uven goel hadam al hamishpatim ha'ele. The congregation will judge between the one who killed and between the avenger of the blood according to these laws. The congregation will will save the killer from the hands of the avenger of the blood and they will cause him to return to the city of refuge from to which he had fled and he will dwell in that city until the death of the high priest who has been anointed with the holy oil. The protocol therefore is one who kills unintentionally immediately flees to a city of refuge. There he is provided refuge he will be subsequently judged and the case will be thoroughly investigated at the place where the crime took place. If he is in fact found to be an unintentional killer, he will then be returned to the city of refuge to live out his sentence until the death of the high priest. If on the other hand it is discovered that he has murdered intentionally, he will be given over to the avenger of the blood to mete out justice. Interestingly enough, the Torah connects the term that the killer must remain in the city of refuge to the death of the high priest. And in Chazal and the Rishonim, various reasons are offered as to why it should be connected to the death of the high priest. Rashi offers a Midrashic insight the high priest is tasked with introducing God's presence to the people of Israel. The one who kills causes God's presence to dissipate. And therefore, it would be entirely inappropriate for the killer who caused God's presence to dissipate to return to his home before the death of the high priest, because the high priest is the one who introduces God's presence to the world. Alternatively, says Rashi, based on the Gemara in Masechet Makot, it was the task of the high priest to pray, to intercede, 
and through his prayer to ensure that tragedies of these sorts do not take place, which is another way of saying on some level, the Kohen Gadol bears some of the responsibility for what took place, and therefore it is his death which will condition the return of the killer to his former residence, but not before that takes place. Some of the other commentaries suggest that effectively God, as it were, determines for each killer when is the right time for them to return, how lengthy their sentence must be, and so therefore the Kohen Gadol dies at a particular moment in time for some people incarcerated in the city of refuge. It will just be a short period between the time that the crime took place and the time that the high priest died and they return home. And for others it will be a much longer time. And ultimately it is as it were God who decides the outcome, who remains in the city of refuge for a short time, who remains in the city of refuge for a long time, says the Sforno, tying it to the death of the high priest is a way of suggesting it is in the hands of God because only God knows, only God can determine the degrees of responsibility associated with unintentional killing and therefore each one, as it were, gets the right sentence which is appropriate for their particular crime. Verse number 26, If the killer goes forth from the borders of the city's city of refuge to which he had fled, If the avenger of the blood finds him outside of the borders of the city of refuge and the avenger of the blood kills the killer, he is not held accountable. So effectively, the Horeg Vishogeg who leaves the city of refuge before the death of the high priest does so at his own risk. In the city of refuge he will dwell until the death of the high priest and after the death of the high priest the killer will return to the land of his possession. These will be for you an eternal statute for all generations wherever you dwell. Verse number 30. Whoever kills another person will be put to death as a murderer only by the word of two witnesses one witness may not testify against another person to bring about his demise. You may not take ransom for the murderer who deserves to die, but he must die instead. You may not take ransom so that he who fled to the city of refuge may return before the death of the priest. So effectively the Torah spells out three important details associated with these laws. Number one, intentional murder may only be determined 
by two eyewitnesses who have warned the murderer before the act takes place, only then can capital punishment be carried out. Number two, one may not take ransom for either the intentional murderer, he cannot pay his way out of capital punishment, nor for the horeg b'shogeg, one who killed through criminal negligence and must be exiled to the city of refuge, he must actually fulfill his sentence and may not pay ransom in order to remain in his own city. Verse number 33 and 34 complete the section. Velo tachanifu et ha'aretz, asher ki hadam hu yachanif et ha'aretz, velaaretz lo yichupar ladam asher shupachba, you shall not pollute the land in which you are because spilling blood will pollute the land and the land will not be atoned for for the, for the blood that was spilled in its midst except by spilling the blood of the one who except by spilling the blood of the one who spilled it. Verse number 34, You shall not defile the land in which you dwell, because I dwell in it, because I am God who dwells in the midst of the people of Israel. And indicated in these verses is something profound about the inherent sanctity of the land of Israel, which is a direct fun function of God's dwelling in that place, so to speak. And therefore, any act of injustice pollutes the land and causes God's presence, God's Shekhinah, to dissipate from that location. A couple of important parallels to our section, one that pertains to all of humanity from the Noahide laws in Parshat Noah. Parsha Sefer Bereshit, chapter 8, verse number 5, indicates, and verse number 6 especially, that he who kills another human being forfeits their own life. The language is very reminiscent of our verses here. Shofech dam ha'adam, ba'adam damo yishafech, ki betzelem Elohim asa'et ha'adam. One who spills the blood of another human being, by human beings his blood will be spilled, because God made human beings in his own image. The second section which pertains to our discussion is chapter 19 of Sefer Devarim, which we will not explore, but just be aware that it also deals with the issue of murder and the issue of criminal negligence causing death, the issue of the cities of refuge, three cities to the east, three cities to the west, and the provision of additional cities should the borders expand as a function of the people of Israel possessing the land successfully. One last thing is, of course, the references in Sefer Yehoshua. Sefer Yehoshua, much like Sefer Bimidbar, ends with the discussion of Levitical cities and cities of refuge, except in the reverse order. In Sefer Yehoshua, it's first cities of refuge and then the Levitical cities. And this material is in chapter 20 and chapter 21 of Sefer Yehoshua, but very much it parallels our discussion here. The final section of Sefer Bimidbar, the daughters of Tzilofchad and their marriage, begins with chapter 36, Verse number one. 
the heads of the clans of the families of Gilad, son of Machir, son of Menasheh, from the families of Yosef, approached and they spoke to Moshe and the elders, the heads of the clans of the people of Israel. Verse number two, et aduni tziva adunai latet et haaretz benachalab begoral livnei Yisrael va aduni tziva adunai latet et nachalat tzilofchad achinu livnotav. And they said, our master was commanded by God to give the land in possession according to Lot to the people of Israel. And our master was commanded by God to give the possession of Tzilofchad, our brother, to his daughters. If they should become married to one of the other tribes of the people of Israel, then their possession will be subtracted from the possession of our ancestors and it will be added to the possession of the tribe that they will become part of and the possession of our particular land will be rendered deficient. And when the Jubilee occurs for the people of Israel, their possession will be added onto the tribe that they become part of. And as for the tribe of our ancestors, it will become diminished. Effectively, what the elders of Menasheh are worried about is if the daughters of Tzolofchad marry members of another tribe and they have children and effectively the children will one day inherit the parents but inheritance follows the patrilineal line the sons will inherit before the daughters the land will therefore become associated with the tribe that they marry into and will be therefore lost from their own tribe. We should note that in the Torah, tribal affiliation is always patrilineal, such that, for instance, a Kohen is a Kohen because their father was a Kohen, a Levi is a Levi because their father was a Levi, and so too for all the other tribes. National and religious affiliation, on the other hand, is matrilineal in our tradition. The rabbis learned this from a particular verse in Sefer Devarim, but quite simply, it can be pointed out from the very beginning of our story, between Sarah and Hagar, the two wives of Avraham, Avraham is the progenitor of Yishmael and the progenitor of Yitzchak, but it's through Yitzchak that the line continues because the line, insofar as Jewish identity is concerned, is determined by the mother. And Hagar is not the mother that will create the chosen people, it's only Sarah. So matrilineal descent determines national religious affiliation. Patrilineal descent determines tribal affiliation. B'nai Menashe are concerned. The daughters of Tzilovchad will marry outside of the tribe. And therefore, even though they possess land from their father Tzilovchad, it will be subsequently lost to the tribe of Menashe when their own children inherit according to the patrilineal line. 
פסוק ה' ויצב משה את בני ישראל על פי אדוני לאמור כן מטה בני יוסף דברים. משה commanded the people of Israel by God's mouth, by God's instruction saying yes, correct, the tribe of Yosef speak correctly. And this of course echoes exactly what Moshe said when he received the divine response from God in the first place concerning the petition of the daughters of Tzolofchad, Cain benot Tzolofchad doverot, and here, once again, as it were, the counterbalance to that, so yes, do the sons of Yosef speak, they are correct, and therefore, Pasuk Vav indicates, Zehadavar asher tziva Adunai, livnot tzilofchad leimor, latov be'enehem tihiyena lenashim, ach lemishpachat mate avihem tihiyena lenashim. This is the thing which God has commanded to the daughters of tzilofchad, saying, they may be in marriage to whomever they want, whoever is fit in their eyes, but it must be a member of their father's tribe. So two things are indicated here. First of all, that a woman only has to marry the person that she wants to marry. The idea of a forced marriage is inimical to the Torah's tradition. And at the same time, in this particular case, the daughters of Tzolofchad must marry within the tribe such that the land associated with their inheritance remains in the tribe. Pasuk Zayin. Therefore, a possession of land will not turn for the people of Israel from one tribe to the next. Rather, each one will cleave to the tribe, to the possession of their tribe. Any daughter who inherits land from the tribes of the people of Israel must marry within the tribe of her father so that the people of Israel possess their land each in accordance with the tribe, with the possession of their fathers. And therefore, a possession of land will not turn from one tribe to the next because each person will remain with their tribal possession and will cleave, it, uh, will cleave to it according to their tribe. As God commanded Moshe, so too did the daughters of Tzilofchad do. The daughters of Tzilofchad married their cousins. From the family, the families of Menashe, the son of Yosef, they were wed as wives, and therefore their possession remained within the tribe of their father. Chazal, by the way, understood that the idea of marrying within the tribe only, only applied to that particular generation which entered the land. One might surmise that as the kibush and chiluk are underway, the conquest of the land and the distribution and the allotment, it's already a tense situation. It's a complicated situation. It's a situation in which disagreements are bound to break out. And in order to preserve the tribal 
integrity, the integrity of the tribal territory, the Torah mandates for that generation and for only that generation that women who inherit land from their father in the absence of sons must remain within the tribe such that the tribal territory remains intact. Some of the other commentaries suggest the reason for this is a tribe in a tribal society is only likely to fight for that which it regards as its own if there are parts of the tribal territory assigned to it which are bound to be passing to another tribe then the tribe says to itself i can't be bothered fighting for that land it's not mine anyways and in order to obviate that outcome the torah therefore mandates for the generation that enters the land conquers it and possesses it that those that marry, those that inherit land, those daughters that inherit land, must in fact marry within their tribe. The final verse of Sefer B'midbar, Ela ha-mitzvot v'ha-mishpatim asher tziva Adonai b'yad Moshe al b'nei Yisrael ba'arvot Moav al Yarden yerecho. These are the commandments and the statutes which God commanded in the hand of Moshe to the people of Israel at the plains of Moav, on the river Yarden, across from Yerecho, Chazak, Chazak, Venit Chazak. I will conclude with the Ramban's concluding remarks, which I am translating into English. He says the following, the book of Numbers and the tribal flags is now completed. To God, the Lord of hosts, is due praise and gratitude in the hundreds and the thousands and the tens of thousands, just as he wrought great and awesome deeds for our ancestors. May he speedily bring us redemption, rebuild the temple, and reinstate the Davidic kingship. May we merit to see it. May he guard us from error, and may he reveal his Torah's wonders to us. Amen. Ken Yehi Ratzon. Tam Vinishlam. It is completed.